This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten, coming to you from the University of Missouri. And with me today is Gregory Larnell, who's an assistant professor of curriculum and instruction at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Greg, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for inviting me, Sam. We are going to be talking about Greg's article that appeared recently in the Journal for Research in Mathematics Education, Volume 47. And that article is entitled, More Than Just Skill, Examining Mathematics Identities, Racialized Narratives, and remediation among black undergraduates. And so this comes from your dissertation work, which I happen to know because uh, Greg and I overlapped a little bit at Michigan State University. So I do want to start there at Michigan State, Greg, and just ask you, what was your experience in graduate school and who did you work with there um, leading to this dissertation? Well, thanks again, Sam, for inviting me. And like you said, we did overlap a bit at MSU, so we have some shared experiences and and know some, some folks. I got to MSU in 2004 and was recruited there the year before uh, by Glenda Lappin. And I worked with her initially as my advisor uh, for the first few years of my program and also with the Center for the Study of Mathematics Curriculum. Uh, After that, well, after the first few years, I began working with Jack Smith more closely and he ended up being my dissertation chair. So I began working with Jack um, primarily because we began to talk about it, this mutual interest in curricular transition points. Uh, he mm-hmm. did a project several years ago around transitions in the, in the math curricular pipeline. And I was initially interested in the role of algebra in the middle school, um, which also worked quite nicely with my work with Clinda and Betty Phillips and those folks there. But I began to question the role of algebra in the pipeline and Mm. specifically the way in which algebra tends to act, not tends to act the way that we enact it as a gatekeeper Mm. um, at the middle school level. I only then began to uh, look around the Michigan State campus, in fact, and I began to see that algebra was being enacted as a gatekeeper there as well for undergraduates who were just then matriculating to the university. Yeah. And I was really curious about the role of those courses and the fact that as I would um, walk down the hallways, and I'll say a little bit more about this in the case of one of my research participants later, I noticed that in many of those classes, um, the students who were in the seats were ostensibly black and Latino disproportionately so given my views of other classrooms and my experiences teaching other classes in that same department. So I began to take that lens on algebra curricular transitions in the middle school and really began thinking about how that affected high school students who were transitioning to college. And that's interesting, too, because the article in Jeremy sits at the, I would say, at the intersection of these kind of transition points like you're talking about, but then ideas about students' identity and then racialized identity and racialized narratives in those spaces. Um, But it's interesting that you came to it from 
an interest, a general interest in these different transition points in mathematics education. And then once you were there, you noticed that it was a racialized space. You noticed that maybe the students' identities were playing into it and that, you know, in many dynamic ways, like the students are bringing identity, but then this algebra as a gatekeeper might be affecting their identity. Um, and so now you're in this intersection space. So you kind of told that story about how you got interested and how you started to notice this. You did this work in your dissertation, and then you kind of continued the analysis here for the JRME paper. I'm wondering if that work shifted or if the way that you looked at it shifted from the beginning to the end, and did you start to see things differently or bring different things to bear? Mm, that's a really good question. Yes. In fact, um, the biggest piece that I brought to it over time was attention to stereotype threat and attention to identity threat more broadly. As I continued to study the findings that were coming out of the interviews and the observations and trying to make sense of them, the initial lenses that I used were, were critical race theory and other sorts of critical analytic theories, but I began to notice that students were questioning themselves and sometimes that questioning didn't make sense to me. It seemed like the students' interactions with the, in their environments around them were causing them to question themselves in ways that didn't seem to, for lack of a better word, naturally extend from, from the other ways in which they identified. For instance, the, you know, these students were high-achieving students in high school for the most part. Um, and the two participants that I talk about in the article particularly were high-achieving students and relatively high-achieving on paper in math. Now, we know that that can be problematic uh, from school site to school site, using those as markers of achievement. But they identified themselves as, as being well capable in math classrooms. But when asked about their ongoing feelings about mathematics as a discipline and about their course experiences, over time, those expressed attitudes and expressed identities about themselves began to shift toward less than positive versions of themselves. And so I began to to think very carefully and look at different literatures to try to understand what those identity shifts might be about. Stereotype threat really emerged as, as a strong possibility. It's also the case, though, and this is a bit fortuitous, that uh, Claude Steele published the book Whistling Vivaldi at the tail end of my writing the dissertation. And as I picked up that book and read it alongside my findings, it was very clear to me that that's what was going on. Um, so I delved deep into the stereotype threat literature uh, through his work and many of his students' work. The connections just continued to, to come through very clearly. So um, let's set the stage a little bit more. So you mentioned you know, that you were observing these different classrooms and you kind of had a broad perspective of the mathematical situation that was going as students were transitioning to college. But what was the context of the particular students who were the focus of this article? And then tell us a little bit about the background that we need to know to be able to interpret your findings with regard to this analysis. Sure. So I'll start with the two students. Uh, I call them Vanessa and Cedric. All of the students and all of my various studies are named generally after people that I know from other places. So Vanessa and Cedric <laughs> bring back stories for me that, that go deeper than the study itself. But hmm. So I'll begin with Cedric. So Cedric was a student who came to the university from 
what we might call an exurban city. So it was a it was a city. It was an urban space, but it wasn't from a major metropolitan area. Whereas Vanessa came uh, to university from the major metropolitan center, uh, from which many students matriculated to this particular university. Mm-hmm. That matters because of the distinctive academic backgrounds that both of, both of them brought. Cedric was one of the valedictorians of his high school, a relatively mm-hmm. small high school given his city size. Yet and still, that experience for him cast him into this group of achievers that he strongly identified with. Mm-hmm. So not only did he individually identify as a high achiever, but he had this social network coming out of high school that also signaled high achievement for him. Mm-hmm. So Cedric, in terms of his mathematics background, the details might be a little bit fuzzy for me at this point, but I know, I do remember quite clearly that he had taken advanced courses in in high school. He took a calculus course. He took an AP, um, AP statistics, I believe it was. The semester before he graduated, he had earned enough math credits so that he didn't have to take a math course before he graduated. Now, that may have been, interestingly enough, uh, a sticking point into the continuity of his math trajectory. Mm. Um, But upon taking the math placement exam, his story and Vanessa's story intersect once more. Um, They both had an experience that I later called identity satisficing. I'm not sticking to that term as, as closely now as I did when I wrote the article, but as they took this placement exam, which was computer generated, you took it over the summer while on your own, both of them had the option of selecting I don't know when going through individual items. And they used that option. They both attested to this to place themselves, essentially, in what they thought would be a relatively low level math class that would allow them to have a safe stepping stone into the academic curriculum. Hmm. The exams had a battery of, I should say, um, algebra oriented items from linear expressions, simplifying linear expressions all the way to uh, simplifying and solving multi-degree polynomials um, equations and inequalities, you know, all the way up to cubics and quartics, and really complex expressions in some cases, but all the way through um, calculus in, in on the exam itself. Mm-hmm. So as both of these students navigated this exam, what they reported was that they began to select the I don't know option more often. And the reasoning that they gave behind that was to begin to place themselves in what they thought would be a safer stepping stone course to enter the academic curriculum at the university. Uh This was very curious to me, right? So students who had taken algebra courses, had taken in at least one case a calculus course. In Vanessa's case, she had taken algebra courses and, um, I believe, a statistics and probability course as well. Why would they not demonstrate their mathematical knowledge in this space? Mm -hmm. Well, as I argue in the paper, it seems to be that 
they were what what again what I call satisficing. They were satisfying the minimal requirements of the university by completing the exam, but they were doing so in such a way that was only minimally sufficient, right? So they were selecting the I don't know options when they had other choices. Mm-hmm. And to sort of extend that portmanteau a little bit further, they were also sacrificing their trajectories as a result. Oh. Yeah, so that is a very intriguing question, right? And so that definitely, as a researcher, I can imagine that would draw you in to want to kind of understand these students more and their experiences and where they're coming from. And to so to gather the data and get to know these students' experiences, it sounds like you had observed classrooms, but it also sounds like you talked to them quite a bit. So can you just lay out for us how you did do that data collection and just briefly um, give the span of that data collection? Sure. So the data collection... Uh, really spanned an academic year. Uh, I began in the fall of that year with an initial questionnaire with just some sort of Likert scale items about math attitudes, some background information about courses that they had taken. And I also had an open-ended item at the end of the questionnaire that asked them to just talk briefly about their experiences in that classroom uh, that I called a non-credit bearing remedial course in the article. Mm -hmm. Um, I called it by name on the questionnaire. And from that questionnaire, I was able to assemble uh, assemble different groups of students that I may be potentially interested in interviewing. Mm -hmm. But to complement that interview process, I observed the classroom that these students were taking. And it was approximately 30 students. Um, And, you know, as the consent process went on, maybe 25 consented. Uh, I probably got back around 20 questionnaires, and ultimately I assembled a group of 12 students that I was really intently interested in talking more deeply with. Mm -hmm. I observed them throughout the semester in their classroom, which met each of the five days of the week uh, for at least 50 minutes. Uh, Two times a week, the class met for, uh, I believe, an hour and 10 minutes or something like that. Um, So I had lots of opportunities to observe them. While observing them, I created a classroom interaction chart. So I was charting their interactions with each other, their interactions with the teacher, who was saying what at what times. There was a little bit of a a discourse analysis feel to that, but not so uh, micro. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to get just the scope of the general discourse in the classroom and how the students, the particular students that I was interested in, how they were positioning themselves um, in the discourse and in the classroom. So those inter- those observations went th- from, say, September through late November. But also throughout that time, I began a series of four interviews with eight students. The intent was that eight students would complete the series of four interviews, three during the fall semester and a follow-up interview in the spring semester. Many of them did complete the full series, but some of them did not. Um, and I write about that in some article, in articles um, that appear elsewhere. So I've had the interview process, the observations, the protocols within the observations, and then the questionnaire. And all of those fueled the generation of findings that would, that would uh, come later. Mm-hmm. And then as you're looking through that data and making sense of it, um, obviously identity is an important concept for you in this study. 
And so how is it that you thought about identity? Because different people, you know, take it or define it in different ways. Right. Uh, so for me, I, you know, because the the project was really around initially these curricular transitions, the question that I had was, how do students think about themselves amidst those transitions? How do they think about who they're becoming in terms of general academic students, but also specifically in terms of mathematics students? Mm-hmm. Um, and how are they constructing those identities over time? Um, and that phrasing itself leads to a certain formulation of identity. So going back to the question of my own academic background in graduate school, mm-hmm. as just a sort of side note, um, I also had the opportunity to to study and take a few courses with Anas Fard um, mm-hmm. when she was there for a few years. Fortuitous as that was for me, I really developed a very distinctive perspective on what identity is drawn from her work. So for me, identity became, or identity is the fluid construction of ourselves and how we narrate ourselves. You know, in her work, thinking and communicating aren't distinctive acts. One is a form of the other, where um, thinking is just an individualized form of communicating. Mm-hmm. And so for me, identity became this individualized form of communicating one's being, mm-hmm. um, first to oneself, then to others, and then how a third party might communicate to someone else about yet someone else. And so you have all of these patterns of communication happening, which sort of maps on to the interaction patterns that I was noting uh, in my data collection. And in the interviews, I really wanted to know how students were talking about themselves over time as mathematics students. And through that work, this racialized discourse started to emerge. Um, So students weren't just talking about themselves as math students. They weren't just talking about themselves as general college students. Um, But they also began to integrate their other identities as racialized persons, as gendered persons, as generationally aged persons and all of those identities began to weave together in their narratives about their experiences in these courses. My guest is Greg Larnell from the University of Illinois at Chicago and we're speaking about his article in the Journal for Research and Mathematics Education and this article actually uh, is one of the ones that's the free preview article so everybody can go and get it as a PDF which is kind of nice. But now Greg we have through you, we've met Vanessa and Cedric. We've heard a little bit about where they came from and how they ended up in a remedial mathematics course at the university. But now talk to us about what you learned about Vanessa and Cedric and their identities as they went through this course over the semester. Um, So by way of asking them questions about their current experiences in the course, their experiences outside of the classroom at the university, their experiences with their peers in the classroom, with the instructor in the classroom. Uh, I was able to learn quite a bit about how these students who, again, initially identified as strong academic students, as strong mathematics students specifically, Mm -hmm. how the course experience began to affect their thinking about themselves. They continued to maintain these high-achieving academic identities for sure. They always spoke about themselves as 
working toward graduation, as piecing together the academic courses and experiences that would lead them toward that goal. Both Cedric and Vanessa were um, interested in uh, so-called STEM-oriented careers. And so they were they were sort of locked in in terms of having strong, quote-unquote, strong mathematics identities or what uh, Ebony McGee might call robust math identities. Um, mm. So yes, they were they were definitely high achieving students. But what I began to notice over time was that their math identities began to converge with other sorts of narratives, stereotypical narratives about how black students should operate in the math classroom, for instance. Or they began to notice more that black students in their class weren't achieving or Latino students in their class weren't achieving and speaking to that. Um, critiquing other students' participation and in some ways getting distracted by the classroom environment in that way. Uh, it became began to overtake their experiences a bit. They talked less about the mathematical work that they were doing and more about the identity contingent work that they were doing um, mm. in the classroom. And there's a, a vignette in the article uh, with regard to Cedric in which he begins to do all of this, what I call identity detection work, uh, contingency detection work, um, looking around the hallways and other classrooms to figure out who was in the seats and what were they studying, um, mm -hmm. and noticing that in his classroom it was mostly bl black and brown students studying essentially middle and high school algebra topics. Um, and be he began to wonder about that and wonder openly about that. And so uh, the claim in the article is that this extra work uh, is something that these students were were dealing with uh, beyond the skill and conceptual work that they were intended to undertake as part of the mathematics course. Mm -hmm. And did you also see some of this extra work kind of being undertaken by Vanessa, where she was also noticing these things and bringing them out? Uh, yes, actually. And on a methodological note, in Vanessa's case... As we began to talk about these um, events, and I'll describe one in, in just a moment, I had to adjust the design a bit, uh, and, be, and I began, began to observe other sorts of university settings in which these students were participating, mm -hmm. um, because they were talking about their math learning experiences in those spaces as well. One of those spaces for Vanessa was uh, a university support program that was oriented toward uh, first-generation students, students from underrepresented groups, racially underrepresented groups, um, and other sorts of other groups of students who may have, for uh, for different reasons, uh, needed additional social supports as they matriculated to the university. And she attended these groups regularly. Um, there was a university staff member who facilitated many of the discussions. They were lively. I, I actually really enjoyed going to them uh, many times. Um, and I would just sit in the back of the room and watch the, the discourse unfold. But often I noticed a general theme of these groups was the non-credit bearing remedial math course that many of these students had taken. Mm -hmm. And as I write about in the article, in one of these sessions, there was a skit that was put on by some of the more senior students in the group that was intended to 
dispel some of the anxieties around these courses for students who are taking them, you know, put a comedic spin on some of it, mm-hmm. but also share some real study tips regarding how to navigate particular topics, how to talk with your instructor about, you know, seeking help and that sort of thing. But as I, as I note in the article, uh, an undercurrent of the skit was also the racialized dynamics of the classroom. Um, it underscored the fact that these courses disproportionately draw black and brown students. And it inadvertently, I would say, played up some racial stereotypes about black and brown students that Vanessa certainly picked up on and talked about in the course of, of our interviews together. The point of this, though, is not to directly, or not to suggest that you know we shouldn't have these support groups. No, but that we should have more concerted, uh, more of a connection rather between the courses and the support groups, so that the talk between them doesn't set up an adversarial relationship, or that instructors are plugged into the discourse that students are generating outside of the classroom. Mm-hmm. I think it could be a support to instructors. I think it could certainly be a help to students to have a stronger connection between these external support programs and the actual happenings of the classroom. Because the discourse about these courses is is happening in various circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, in an article that I'm finishing now that's more uh, sociology-oriented, uh, I talk about another student who is picking up similar messages but from a, from a parent who just happened to attend that same university and take those same courses. Mm. And so it's just another example of messaging around certain curricular experiences, especially math curricular experiences that are high stakes, that have stigma and stereotypes of their own, how those messages get transmitted or transferred intergenerationally, um, by parents, peers, uh, institutional members. Um, The instructor also plays a large role in regenerating some of these messages around who's successful, what success looks like, uh, who tends to participate, and what good participation looks like, and and those sorts of things get racialized and gendered. Yeah, and it it does seem like to address those things fully and like you said to have the advantages of sort of the open communication whether it be instructors students other you know stakeholders in the situation it does seem like it it requires opening up the scope a little bit because i feel like a lot of times the focus maybe from the instructors or the department or administration the focus is maybe on just the course needs to cover these topics and then you know right. we we're going to look at the pass rates or the final exam scores or something like that and what you're talking about is really opening up to more like the full range of the students experiences what they're learning what they're dealing with the work that the student has to do and how it's affecting them as a person and a student um yes. so you're you're bringing in more issues than just what topics are covered at what speed and then how do they fare on the final exam absolutely Absolutely. Broadening the ways in which we assess and even conceptualize what success can look like in these courses and how supports can be structured around these courses to help students navigate them. And the supports might not just be tutoring for the content. The supports might be 
taking in the full range of really what what's entailed in a course. Exactly, including the psychosocial issues that students are navigating. Right. So you mentioned the how the racialized aspects came in to the course and to Cedric and Vanessa's descriptions, also into this uh, support group that you're talking about. I wondered if you could just say a little bit more about the racialized aspects from Vanessa and Cedric that you were able to see in the data. Yeah, so there was some talk about, again, these sort of stereotype threat cues. So for instance, Cedric noticing disproportionate numbers of black and brown students in his classroom. Uh, Claude Steele and his work calls that a critical mass cue, which is to suggest that we all go through the world looking at and making sense of groups of people um, and how we might be more or less comfortable among those groups of people um, based on our identities and theirs or our perceived identities and their perceived identities, uh, racialized and otherwise, as one aspect of of how race enters uh, this for Cedric. In the case of Vanessa, you know, the the racialized aspect was a bit more subtle because she was not as explicit about it. In Cedric's case, he talked very explicitly about what it meant to be a black student in that class. Uh, I did not prompt either Cedric or Vanessa to talk about race explicitly. Um, Cedric did by way of of his own noticings, uh, again, of who was in of who was in his class and who was in other classes. And he expanded that discourse to then talk more generally about what it meant to be a black student and to achieve at that particular university, what it meant to be a black student and a representative of his family and what that meant in relation to his academic achievement and his math achievement specifically. Um, He also talked a bit, though, about how he felt shame and embarrassment to talk specifically about that math course with his peers, with his family, because he didn't want it to reflect poorly on him. And in Vanessa's case, uh, she also talked a bit about connections to family Um, Although, again, the racialized discourse for her was not as explicit, it was only by way of the skit group that we really get to uh, explicitly race-oriented conversations about um, the course structure and about the support systems. So if I can back away from those two participants for a second and speak more generally, in trying to do this, this interview work and bring out these racialized topics, I've been telling folks that, you know, it's, it's really difficult to do it directly. Uh, it's very difficult to approach anyone as, so, you know, what is it like being black in this class? Um, mm. I, I feel like that would, in terms of an interview, change the direction in ways that probably wouldn't be totally productive. Uh, it might shut down the conversation more than open it up. And mm-hmm. so it's been my experience to ask generally about um, students' experiences, uh, what they notice, what they wonder about. And it's been through those sorts of questions that I've been able to, to encourage students. And just by also building a, a rapport with students over time, sharing my own stories too, that have encouraged them to open up and talk a bit more about um, some of the identity-oriented experiences that they're having in these, in these sorts of courses. Mm-hmm. So I want to step back now and just ask you, having done the study and thought about these ideas, you know, for quite a while and f- through different lenses, 
what is it that you're still grappling with or what is it that you're taking forward with you into your future work, whether that be your work as an educator or your work as a researcher? So in terms of what I'm working on now as an extension of this work, I'm still very much interested in the ways in which students negotiate identity in their math learning experiences. Um, still also interested in the post-secondary transition. This is not a space that I thought initially I would be spending a lot of time. Again, I was really interested in middle school and, and I still am, and I'm still doing a little bit of work thinking about these issues and trying to think about these issues um, among middle schoolers. Um, although that's much more difficult because it's, it's more difficult to prompt these sorts of broader conversations among younger learners. But I'm still very much interested in that. Uh, one thing that I'm working on now, though, as an extension directly of this work, is this phenomenon called cooling out. Um, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, I was working, I'm working on a paper, or trying to finish it now, that takes on this sociological construct of cooling out the learner, uh, which was introduced in the 1950s and then picked up in higher education in the 60s and has been sort of resurging and receding from time to time since. But the basic gist of it, and it relates in some ways to Vanessa's case, is that learners have a network of people around them that encourage them or discourage them from taking on certain responsibilities and obligations toward accepting or dealing with the prospect of failure. Um, so one might think of non-credit-bearing remedial math courses as a critical point that may lead to failure. Um, if you don't pass these courses, you, you don't graduate college. And so there's a, there's a lot at stake. And what I've been investigating now is to what extent are folks who, in, who are advising these learners cooling them out to the possibility of failure. And I have a couple of cases um, that I talk about in this particular paper, uh, Ruby and Nicole specifically, and then I also have a little bit from Vanessa in this paper, that talk about the network of people around them and the ways in which they may or may not um, encourage them to take on certain obligations in relation to this, to this particular math course. I'm still interested in sort of the, the broader psychosocial issues that students are navigating in relation to their math learning experiences in these types of courses. But beyond this particular work, I'm really, really interested in how, how my work is situated in this broader socio-political turn that the field is taking. Mm -hmm. um, how do we think about the intersection of identity and power, whether it's in the context of students' learning experiences, whether it's in the interactions between students and teachers, um, whether it's at the institutional level, at the school level, or even the institutional level in the sense of math education itself as a domain. How do we think about how, how identity and power cooperate in the context of math education? How do we think about what that means for the ongoing evolution of equity discourse in our field? Personally, I've begun uh, really thinking and writing about the possibility that equity may not be, um, that we may need to reorient our attention to what equity means for us in this field. I have questioned why we use equity so much and not 
pay attention to inequity and injustice, to the extent that we may soothe ourselves with equity discourse and permit ourselves to not attend to issues of inequity and injustice. I see many of the issues that I've dealt with in my study as matters of inequity in trying to parse that inequity um, by looking through the lens of students' experiences and students' identities. So I don't really consider myself in some ways, through this study at least, a quote-unquote equity scholar. What I'm really looking at is injustice and inequity and how we can see that more clearly. Greg Larnell's article is available right now for free from the Journal for Research in Mathematics Education, and that's uh, the article's entitled More Than Just Skill, Examining Mathematics Identities, Racialized Narratives, and Remediation Among Black Undergraduates. And Greg, I know you listen to the podcast, so I appreciate that. So you know this question that's coming next, and you also probably knew it before the podcast because our friend Aaron Brackenecki is actually the one who I stole (laughs) this question from. My former office mate. (laughs) Exactly. Um, if you were not in mathematics education, what else could you imagine yourself doing? Yeah, so I was thinking about this question uh, <laughs> briefly before we started. You know, it's, it's, this is a tough one because I've been doing this now for for my whole professional career. Um, but I think, though, you know, thinking about the things that I like to do outside of math education, I probably want to pursue art. I I draw and paint and play music and think about music quite a bit, write and read broadly, uh, write poetry and essays. Um, So I think I try to pursue being an artist of some kind, Mm -hmm. um, whether a visual artist or a literary artist, or maybe a mix of the the two. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And hopefully that would take me to a beach somewhere. And being in Chicago, there's obviously a lot of cultural... Are, are there um, things that you're enjoying right there where you can kind of scratch that artistic itch? Oh, absolutely. One of my favorite places to decompress and even write a bit is the Art Institute. Um, oh. It has been mm-hmm. since I was a college student. I, I'm very appreciative of the opportunities to to visit the art museums here, to see shows, to, like you said, scratch that artistic itch a bit. And I also live in an area that um, I actually live in the arts district of the little village that I that I live in, and so I, you know, the little local galleries here that I visit frequently. Um, the art shop people know me by name, so I'm still painting. I'm still trying to nurture that that part of my identity. Great. Well, Greg, thanks so much for being here with us. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Sam.